0: When you hear the word substitute, when you hear the word substitute, you usually think of replacing one thing with something else that's of lesser or equal value. When you go to a restaurant, for instance, and ask to substitute one item for another, you don't ask the the waiter to substitute your french fries with another steak. If, if, If you have a restaurant you go to where they frequently replace your french fries with another steak, let me know that I want to go there today. Um, I mean, they might be willing to substitute you a baked potato or a side salad for your french fries, but they're not going to give you another steak, right? Um, a substitute in our world usually means that we're replacing one thing with something else of lesser or maybe equal value. The only exception I can think of where this doesn't apply is in the story of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. In the Gospel story, and I hope you have a chance to read it this week as we approach Easter next Sunday. In the Gospel story, a substitution takes place that shatters the norm. A criminal is condemned to die, but a substitute of infinitely greater value dies in that criminal's place. We're going to read a portion of this gospel account in the book of Luke today, and I'm going to share some commentary as we read it together. But I, I want us to spend some time today thinking about what it means when we say that Jesus died in our place. I want us to think about what that means, the implications of it, the power of it, the, the impact of it. Is there another warning? Was that what that was? Okay, okay I'm sorry. Uh, dear God, save us from all the warnings. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 23. It's going to be on the screen above my head, but we're going to go to the portion where of, of, the, of, of the gospel account of the trial and crucifixion of Christ when Pilate is about to render his verdict regarding the charges brought against Jesus. This is the third. There were actually three trials that Jesus endured the night of his, uh, the night of his crucifixion uh, or the, the night of his, of, of his passion. And this was the final time when he appeared before Pilate. So turn with me if through Luke chapter 23. Let me uh, give you some commentary as we go along, just to kind of enhance, I hope, what the message is today. Starting at verse 13, it says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Let's pause for a moment. Let me just say this. Luke makes a point here throughout his account of letting us know that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is an innocent man. Pilate sees it for himself and Pilate declares in public that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus didn't deserve death, that he was innocent of all the charges that had been brought against him. And what we need to understand here is that what was true of Jesus historically and legally is also true of Jesus theologically. Jesus was innocent of any sin at all. Do you know? It, it bothers me. I'm going to, it bothers me that they took a survey last year. Do you know that nearly 50% of the believers in America believe that Jesus committed sin when He was here on the earth? Let me set the story straight here. Jesus never sinned against anyone. He never did anything wrong. Pilate himself, a man, said he has done nothing to deserve death. God says about him, about Jesus in His Word. In 1 Peter 1.19, he says Jesus was a lamb without blemish or defect. There was nothing wrong in Jesus' attitudes or behavior at all, ever. And it's on this basis of His sinlessness that Jesus is able to become that once and for all sacrifice for us on the cross. As John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If Jesus had not been sinless, He could not have gone to the cross and taken our place. Let's get back to the Word. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Now what's interesting, let's pause. We're here at at, uh, on Palm Sunday. The same people that were shouting the praises of Christ, the same people that were laying palm fronds at his feet, at the feet of the little donkey carrying him through the streets of Jerusalem, crying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is now the same group of people who were shouting out, crucify him. That's how fickle our human hearts are, y'all. Left to ourselves, we're wicked as can be. And we'll turn on you like that. That's just who we are. Away with this man, the crowd shouted. Release Barabbas to us. Parenthetically, it tells us Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. I want you to notice something that Barabbas was actually guilty of the same crime that they had attached to Jesus. Insurrection. Rebellion. So they had this custom back then. In order to show a little mercy... Excuse me, let me get the page turned here. In order to show a little mercy during the Feast of Passover, the Romans had this custom. they would allow the Jews to choose a prisoner to be released. And Pilate was certain. He thought that the Jews would rather that he release Jesus than the actual murderer and, and, uh, and, and uh, insurrectionist Barabbas. But Pilate was wrong. Pilate was wrong. Another account in the Gospel tells us that the leaders of the Jews went among the people and stirred them up to continue to cry out for Jesus' crucifixion. The Jews wanted the murderer Barabbas to be released, and the innocent Jesus put to death. Get back to the Word. Wanting to release Jesus. Do you see in Pilate this? He didn't understand. Why are you guys so set on killing this innocent man? Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! For the third time, Pilate spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. Now I want you to remember something. Luke is trying to make it clear to us that Jesus is innocent of all of these charges. This is the third time that Pilate has declared the innocence of Jesus. He did it in verse 4, verse 14, and again in verse 22. Back to the passage of Scripture. But with loud shouts, with loud shouts, this crowd insistently demanded that Christ be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. One last piece of commentary before we get into the message. I want you to understand that rather than releasing the innocent man, Jesus, Pilate releases the guilty man, Barabbas. Which, by the way, I want you to know a couple of details here. This Greek word that's We translate as release is actually a legal term. The word release in Greek is apoluo, which I'm sure is pronounced incorrectly. Give me a thumbs up. Thank you, John. I got one right. Apoluo, which means to pardon or to set free. The name, we know who Jesus is, Son of God, Barabbas. I want you to think about his name for just a minute. Barabbas. Do you know what that literally means in the Hebrew? Son of man. The son of God was condemned to die so that the son of man could be released, pardoned, set free. The idea of substitution here. I want us to consider this idea of substitution here. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much and I thank you for the great word of God that illuminates our lives and gives us truth to live by. I have no idea who this message is for. I don't know if anyone's going to get anything from it, but I know this message comes from your heart. And I pray today that every mind would be opened to the truth of it and every heart would be willing to embrace it to live by its truth, to live in its power so that they could themselves be set free, walk free from condemnation, guilt, and fear. Be set free to live a life of freedom and joy and peace and hope. This is your intention for every man and woman in this room. If we would simply look to you, believe, trust in your name, embrace this gospel for ourselves. Spirit of God, do your work in this room. Take me out of the way. Speak through me, but take me out of the way. And deliver this message to this people in this moment for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you were Barabbas. Just imagine for a moment... I like to read the Gospels this way. I like to read Bible stories this way. If that was me, if I were in their shoes, how would I respond? Well, let's say for a moment, just a moment, that you were Barabbas. If you were Barabbas, what would you have done when the jailer said to you that you've been released? What would you have done when the jailer came to your cell, unlocked the door, and said, you're free to go? Uh, You're the one that's been found of... Guilty of murder and insurrection, you're the one that's been condemned to die on the cross, but the jailer comes to your cell and gives you a different account of things. He says, you've been released. You're free to go. Would you have believed him? Would you you have thought it was some kind of trick? Would you have thought there was some kind of mistake that had been made? Would you have stood there and argued with the jailer about it? Or would you have run out of that prison cell, out of that prison, and into the streets of free man, laughing and celebrating at what had just happened? Frankly, we all stand in Barabbas' shoes. We're locked in a prison of our own making called sin. Condemned to die. Condemned to die an eternal death, separated from God forever. But now because of what Jesus has done, our cell door has been opened and we have been told, you're free to go. And some of us are still arguing with a jailer about it. You see, Jesus suffered and died in the place of Barabbas. Jesus became the substitute for Barabbas at the cross. An innocent man died for a guilty one. But isn't what happened to Barabbas symbolic of what has happened to every one of us who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's exactly what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I mean, you could really summarize the entire gospel in just four words. Jesus in your place. Jesus in your place. Jesus in our place means that the innocent has suffered for the guilty. Jesus in our place means that the just has suffered and died for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Jesus in our place, as our substitute, died for us on the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place. Jesus in our place. Paid the debt we owe. Jesus in our place fulfilled the law that we broke. Jesus in our place suffered the penalty that we deserved. Jesus in our place died so that we could be made right with God. Jesus, I'm telling you, summarize the gospel in just those four words. Jesus in our place. I want us to meditate on these four words really, just, just, just for a few moments. I'm only going to bring out two points, and I want you to go home and think some more about it because there are far more implications than this in these four little words. But I just want to, for us to think briefly this morning before we leave about what it means, Jesus in our place. What are the implications for us? What does it mean when we say Jesus in our place? First, it means this. Jesus in our place gives worth to the phrase, God loves you. Jesus in our place gives value to that phrase, God loves you. Man, let me tell you something. We use that phrase so much, it's almost become trite and meaningless. God loves you. How many times have you heard that this week? God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God really loves you. I'm afraid sometimes it's said so much that we lose sight of what it really means. It's almost lost its value. It's as if we think that if we just say it enough, then people will somehow get it. God loves you. If we say it loud enough they're going to feel it. God loves you. They're going to be moved by it. They're going to receive it if we just say it enough. It'll change them if we just say it enough. But what does it mean when we say it? God. Lo- Most people, they don't even have a clear idea of who God is, much less what love is. What does it mean when we tell people God loves you? How does God love me? What does God's love really look like? What does it mean? Go to Romans chapter 5. And here's how God shows us His love in no uncertain terms. It says, when we were utterly helpless, when we were utterly helpless, when we had no options at all, when there was no power, there was no juice, there was nothing, when we were completely broken, when we were totally down and out, when we had nothing going for us, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. When you hit rock bottom, who's there? Who's waiting to pick you up? Who's waiting to dust you off? Who's waiting to get you going again? I mean, some of us, our own families have turned their back on us, but God never turned his back on us. It goes on to say, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Does anybody fit that especially good category in here? I didn't think so, because you're honest people. Say those the next two words with me. But God. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You didn't have to clean yourself up. You didn't have to get all dressed all pretty. You didn't have to get your act right. You didn't have to straighten out your life. God loved you still. God loves you yet. God will always love you. He always has. In your lowest moment, God still loves you. Jesus in our place. See, this is what gives the phrase God loves you. It's worth and it's meaning. Jesus In our place, Jesus took our sin upon Himself. Jesus bore our punishment. Jesus suffered God's wrath intended for us. Jesus died for us that we might be saved, that we might be rescued, that we might be made whole. Jesus takes, Jesus takes what belongs to us, our sin, our nastiness, our filth, And he gives what belongs to him, gives us what belongs to him his righteousness, his purity, his innocence. I don't know about you, that's a pretty significant exchange. That's the theology behind this phrase that has become so trite and meaningless in our mouths. This is what gives the phrase, God loves you, meaning. Jesus in our place. Without Jesus, we have nothing. We are nothing. We will never be anything. But because of him, him in our place, we now have become the righteousness of God. Alistair Begg puts it this way. Alistair Begg said, Jesus did not come To live as an example of how to die as a martyr, but as a substitute. Taking the place that we deserve in order that we might enjoy what we don't deserve. This is good news. This is good news. Let us tell our friends. I wish I had the Scottish brogue. Let us tell our friends. I don't have it. Jesus in our place gives worth to that phrase. God, I I hope, I hope that we'll stop just saying the phrase, but we'll think about the meaning behind the phrase that gives us its value. When you tell people, even when you say it to yourself, and I hope that you say it to yourself with more frequency this week because it has more meaning to you this week, when you say the phrase, God loves you, I want you to stop and think for just a moment about what that really means. I want you to be sure that you're talking about a God who demonstrates His... He doesn't just say it. He doesn't just say it. I love you. Oh, no, man. He laid his life down. His life wasn't taken from him. He laid his life down. And greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends, and then he looks at us and he says, you were my friend. This is not empty rhetoric. It's not hot air. He... God's not a gas bag, okay? He backs up what he says with action. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He demonstrates his love toward us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm telling you, this is a love that people can feel. It's a love that I hope wraps itself around your heart and won't let you go. It's a, it's a love that you can understand. And I want to to end with one verse. I've got to share this verse. It's come to me over and over and over again, and I finally put it in my notes today. I want you to go home and meditate on this verse, Romans 8.32. Some of you are still not convinced that God loves you. You're still not convinced of it. And I don't know what He's got to do other than what He's already done. That's laid down the life of of His one and only Son, to die in your place. I don't know how much more God needs to do to convince you of it, but let me say this to you. These are the words of God to your heart today. If you're struggling to believe that God could love someone like you, let me say this, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, generously give us all things? Oh man, he's in your corner. He's in your corner. He's not against you. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. He's not against you. He's for you. He's on your side. He's fighting the battles that you can't possibly win. He's already won them for you. You walk in the victory that he provides. God loves you. God loves you. Second, Jesus in our place makes it possible for God to accept us. See, some of you right now, even though you have prayed a prayer and you have trusted Christ as Savior, you still struggle every day believing that God could accept someone like you with your, with the background that you have, with the struggles that you have, with the things that you're still, that still seem to over, you struggle to believe that God could accept somebody like you. And I'm telling you that this phrase, Jesus in our place, makes it possible for us for, for God to accept us. Let me, let me point out to you something, and I'd love for you to do your own study on this, if you will. If we trust Christ and receive Him as our Lord and Savior, it means that we are now in Christ. Say those two words with me. In Christ. In Christ. The, the New Testament only uses the word Christian three times. But in the New Testament, in the epistles of Paul alone, the terms in Christ are used to describe uh, people who put their trust and faith in Christ. In, in this way, in, it, that phrase in Christ or in Him or something like it is used over 160 times in the New Testament when it's talking about those of us who have placed trust in Christ. In Christ this is what in Christ means. It means God looks at us And He sees our sin has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, He sees us as in Christ with Christ's righteousness covering us. He doesn't see you. He sees Christ because you are in Christ. You get that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 again says it this way, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Spurgeon put it this way. When God accepts a sinner, he in fact, he is in fact only accepting Christ. He looks into the sinner's eyes. I love this. He looks into the sinner's eyes and he sees his own dear son's image there and he takes us in. When God sees us, he doesn't see us as this ugly, distorted, corrupted. He sees us as his son. He loves us as his son. He embraces us as his son. We are accepted by God. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of anything we're doing. Not not because of anything we could do. Our acceptance is found in Christ alone. What Christ has done. What Christ is doing. And what Christ will do. is Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. When Pilate looked at Christ on the night of his trial, Pilate found no fault in Christ. He is, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish or defect. Because there is no fault, listen, I hope you can follow me here. Because there is no fault in Christ, then we who are in Christ are faultless too. Because we're in Christ. Does that make sense? We're in Christ. He's faultless. We're in Christ. That makes us faultless too. There there is no fault in Christ, and therefore God looks upon us who are in Christ, and you know what God says about us? I have no fault in you. Because His righteousness covers our unrighteousness. A lot of us have a hard time getting hold of that truth. Because all we can see when we look in the mirror (laughs) is a lot of sin or the effects of sin. But God doesn't look at us that. He looks at us through the eyes of love. And when he sees us, he sees his son who has made an end to all our sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25 Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. I want you to notice why he died for our sins. And why He was raised to life? For our justification. He died for our sins and was raised for us that we may be justified. That means that we can be declared righteous. That means that we can be declared not guilty of sin. That means that we can be accepted by God. Jesus in our place. He died for us. He was raised for us. If we are in Christ, we died with Him. We've been raised with Him. And now we are Justified in the eyes of God. As if we'd never sinned. That's a hard because we're good at holding grudges, aren't we? Boy, it's hard for us to understand how God couldn't hold a grudge against us. I bet God resents the fact that He ever created me in the first place. I've done so much damage. Well, the instant you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus and repent of that sin and turn in faith to Christ, The counts wiped clean. And it's as if there were no sin at all. That's hard for us to grasp. But you're accepted by God, not based on what you've done, or what you are doing, or what you are going to do. Your your acceptance is based on what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. Please, Let that sink in. Some of you are struggling so hard to do what God wants you to do so that He'll accept you more. He can't accept you any more than He accepts you right now. He can't love you any more than He loves you right now. Take a deep breath and enjoy this unbelievable, supernatural relationship that we now have with God through Christ Jesus. Take a deep breath and soak that in. I don't know how it affects you. I don't know how it affects me. It takes all the pressure off of me. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's not me living anymore, it's Christ living in me. It's not up. All I gotta do is cooperate and stop resisting. And let God do in me and through me what He wants to do. I can handle that. I can handle that. I hope you can too. You see, God's love is a perfect love that flows to us through His Son. Let me say that again. God's love is a perfect love that flows to us through His Son. So when we sin, God won't love us any less. And when we do well, God won't love us any more. Our performance doesn't increase God's acceptance of us because God's love is perfectly constant because His love is bound up in His Son, Christ Jesus, our substitute, Jesus in our place. I don't know about you, man. It's hard to sit in a high school classroom writing words down like this, preparing a sermon like this, and not wanting to shout at the loudest, at the top of my lungs, God is good. It'd freak them out, wouldn't it, Caleb? But that's what I wanted to do all week as I prepared this message. Then I watched my computer crash, and I'd lose all my notes and have to write it again. And as I'm writing it again, it's just like God's sinking it deeper in my spirit, man. God accepts me not based on anything I can do. God loves me because of who, God, uh, who Christ is and what Christ has done anyway. I tell you what, man. Some of you need to go home this afternoon. Your views of God are too low. You're serving a God whose love is limited. You need to let go of the limits that you have placed on the love of God for you. There are no limits to His love for you. And it's not because you're all that great a person. It's because your life has been hidden with Christ. He loves you. Always has. Still does. And always will. I mean, I know some of us struggle constantly with guilt and shame. We struggle with it. Some of us hear Satan the accuser whisper in our ear all the time, man, you're a bad person. You are a totally unfit mom. You are a lousy father. You're a stinking horrible. I mean, we hear Satan pumping these kinds of things into our ear, trying to tell us how worthless we are, what a screw-up we are, what a failure we are, how we're never, ever going to win in this struggle against sin. But listen to me, guys. Listen, it's in moments like these, it's in moments like these that we ought to look to the cross it's in moments like these that we ought to see Jesus hanging there. He, has, he is our perfect substitute. He is the perfect one who died in our place to make us right with God. He has made an end to all of our sin, and nothing you can do will make God accept you any more than he does right now. He's not done with you yet. Oh, he's got stuff he's going to work on. Trust me, how well I know. But God accepts you just as you are. You need to embrace that. You need to live in that. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, I hope that you have a chance to read some of his books. Sinclair Ferguson said, When I know that Christ is the one real sacrifice for my sin, That his work on my behalf has been accepted by God, that he is my heavenly intercessor, then his, listen, listen, then his blood is the antidote to the poison in the voices that echo in my conscience, condemning me for my many failures. Indeed, Christ's shed blood chokes them into silence. Man. That's powerful. Let your vision of the cross, let your vision of the cross drown out the cruel accusing voices in your head. Let your vision of the cross drown out the cruel accusing voices in your head. Christ accepts you on the basis of Christ's, excuse me, God accepts you on the basis of Christ's finished work, not on your weak and feeble efforts. I gotta say that again because that's just that's that's from Mark Davis, that's Rich. God accepts you on the basis of Christ's finished work, not on your weak and feeble efforts. You get John? Is that theologically correct, my brother? Take a deep breath. You want me to say it one more time? Whoo. God accepts you on the basis of Christ's finished work, not on your weak and feeble efforts. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor and acceptance and love. Christ did it all for you. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, and refresh yourself in His love. Look, Jesus in our place makes it possible for God to accept us. Whew. Man, if you come back, let's go ahead and bring someone in. It's it's hard. It's hard for me anyway to read Luke 23 and not wonder what happened to Barabbas after he was released. I really would like to know. The Bible doesn't tell us. What happened to Barabbas after he was released? Did Barabbas become part of the crowd that tried out, crucify him, crucify him? Did Barabbas follow along with the crowd to Calvary? to see Jesus die in His place? Did Barabbas watch the the soldiers drive those spikes into the hands and feet of Christ Jesus? We don't know what happened to Barabbas. I do wonder if Barabbas ever understood or appreciated what Christ did for him on the cross. I wonder if Barabbas ever did live with a sense of gratitude For Christ taking his place on the cross. I'll never know until I get to heaven, I guess. We don't know how Barabbas responded to what Christ did for him on the cross. But we're not responsible for what Barabbas did. How are you going to respond to Christ Jesus dying on the cross for you? You're the criminal. I was the criminal. He died for us there as our substitute. What matters now is how we respond to Christ dying in our place. And I'm telling you, there's only one reasonable way to respond to what Christ has done for us. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, in view of Christ paying the price that we should have paid on the cross, dying for our sins, paying the penalty that we should have paid, in view of what He has done for us, the only reasonable response is to lay our lives down before Him as living sacrifices. Living every moment of every day for His glory, in gratitude for what He has done for us. The only reasonable response is to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord and live our lives in gratitude and thanksgiving for what He's done for us. I can't think of another way. What what other way would you choose that makes sense? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to worship the Lord for just a few minutes. Look, I don't know who this message was for, but I I, I tell you, I just felt like somebody in this room needed to hear this message today. Maybe it was just me. It meant a lot to me this week as I prepared it. But I, I, I have a feeling that there are people in this room, you have heard the phrase, God loves you, but you've never really understood what it meant. Well, let me tell you what it means. It means that God loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son to pay a price that you could not have paid, to clear the accounts to make you right with God. Christ died for you on the cross. And God demonstrates His love for you by doing it. And there's still others of us. We have taken to heart what Christ has done for us, but we struggle to believe that God accepts us because we're still broken and we're still struggling. I want you to understand that what the cross says to us is that Jesus died in our place. He is our substitute. When we approach the Father, we do not approach Him on our own merit. We approach Him based on what Christ has done. Christ and His shed blood has opened up a pathway for us to approach the Father in our time of need, without fear, but in boldness and confidence, knowing that our life is hidden with Christ. And when Jesus sees you and me, He sees His Son, Christ Jesus, who have now become part of the body of Christ through faith and repentance. Look, man. Look, man, this is, this is, all, this is awesome news. This is great news. This is great news. All it takes on our part is just to believe, to trust that what God says is true, and to act on that by turning from sin and living for Jesus. I hope that you're ready to make that kind of decision today. I hope that you're willing to see what Christ has done for you, for you, in your place.